Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live.
those that's uh, on the internet, today is July the 18th, 2015 A.D., in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the date on the Roman calendar that we use. And in God's created calendar is the second day of the fifth month. Second day of the fifth month. So we're just two months away from uh, the Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles. So just two months away now that we're going to have all the fall holy days, second harvest holy days. So two months to get ready, plan, and prepare ourselves for that time. Uh, so time is going really quickly. Uh, still praying and seeking about where to have the Feast of Tabernacles. God's will be done in that. Uh, and so... Let's start in Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32. And we're reading from the New American Standard Bible. And if you're wondering why, if you're on the Internet, if maybe this might be your first time listening, we have an article on the ministry website, isawthelightministries.com. We have an article, King James Version Prepared to New American Standard. And I encourage you to check that out, uh, the King James Version Prepared to New American Standard. And, but you're welcome to follow along the King James or whatever translation you may have. But we're reading from, so you won't be lost here, we're reading from New American Standard. And if you don't have a copy, you can also uh, uh, read from New American Standard on BibleGateway.com and other websites that where you can uh, read from New American Standard online on your computer, on your smartphone. I like BibleGateway.com because uh, you can actually have BibleGateway.com to read to you the New American Standard out loud. You don't have to download it first. It's good internet connection on their website. It's a good, easy, good website to use. So I do recommend their website. Genesis 32, starting in verse Take time to anoint the location. In the name of Jesus, hereby anoint this pavilion, this worship service location. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, that regardless of any distractions that will continue.
continue to be able to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth. We'll hear the word of God, no deception of man, that we'll hear the word of God, that the spirit of God prevails, the spirit of God and the spirit of truth prevails in the name of Jesus Christ, and hereby anoint this invitation for the service of the Lord Jesus Christ in Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, I come against every evil spirit which may be within 150 feet of us. Command them in the name of Jesus Christ. If there be any fallen angel, any evil spirit at all within 150 feet of us, for it to flee, for it to depart and not return, in the name of Jesus, I command. In the name of Jesus, I take authority over this pavilion. I claim this pavilion, claim this, these tables, claim this service. In the name of Jesus, for the kingdom of God and for the family of God. In the name of Jesus, we are the family of God. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are in authority. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We have authority over this place in the name of Jesus. We have authority over spirits and principalities in the name of Jesus. Praise God. In the name of Jesus, so be it. Praise the name of Jesus. Praise God. Now, what did I do with the piece of toilet paper that came out of this lid? Well, maybe I'll show it to you. Another one. Lost a lid to that, I think, last week. So, <laughs> probably in the car somewhere, on the ground somewhere. We're in Genesis chapter 32, starting in verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. We know that is the angel of the Lord. We know that is God wrestled with him until daybreak. Talking about the breaking of the day, ending of one day, beginning of another day, in the morning time. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. That's Jacob. said, I will not let go of the Lord. Jacob wanted to continue wrestling with the Lord, would not let the Lord go, and said, bless me. He would not surrender this fight with the Lord until he got blessed, until he got what he was looking for. Like the parable in the book of Matthew where uh, the woman continues to deliver her petition to the judge until she got what she wanted. And Jacob was like this. And so it says here uh, in verse 27, so he said to him, what is your name? Jacob says to God, what is your name? And God says, or actually God said this, ain't it? But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. But he said to him, what is your name? So God says, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. God said, your name should no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. 
So the word Israel means to strive with God. And the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, the descendants of Israel, have always strived with God. They've not had a perfect relationship. It's been a wrestling relationship. Uh, Some people wrestle with their fathers. That doesn't mean, in one sense, don't always necessarily mean there's no love there, but they're striving with their Heavenly Father. Israel has always been close to the heart of God. God loves Israel, even though they're not perfect people. Today, we are spiritual Israel, but as we discovered in a sermon recently, even the physical uh, tribes of Israel, even even though we are adopted once we are born again by water baptism, we are adopted into the spiritual tribes of Israel. But the physical tribes of Israel will also uh, are still important to God. The physical tribes of Israel are still important to God. Uh, the blessings of of God that he gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're talking about Jacob. The blessings that God gave and promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still exist today and will exist to the very day that Jesus comes back and even into the millennium, even into the short season. Those promises don't disappear just because of the new covenant. Those promises upon the physical tribes do not disappear. God still loves the nation of Israel, but the nation of Israel now is 12 tribes, including the United States, the greatest commonwealth, many different nations, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, all these tribes and mountains of Israel are under the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's not unconditional blessings. But it is a covenant that God will always remember. And so the people of Israel, talking about not only the Jews, but also Americans, the British people, are still striving with God. Still striving. None of us have attained yet. And so God says, I'm going to change your name to Israel. And it says here in verse 28, he said, Your name should no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But God said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place of Peniel, the word of the letters E-L, at the end of that, is Hebrew for God. E-L means God. So if you look at the word Israel, how it ends with the word E-L, that is striving with God. So E-L is the Hebrew form for God. It's not his name. It's just how you say the word God uh, in either Syrian or Hebrew, one or the other. We know 
theos is God in Greek, and Greek is true Hebrew. So it remains to be seen whether El is maybe another word for God in true Hebrew or if it's Syrians. For he said, I have seen God face to face. I'd like for you to remember that Jacob saw God face to face. He says, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. It was considered that if you saw God, you would die. So this was a miracle to Jacob. And Jacob realized that it was a miracle that he was still alive, that he had not only saw God, he touched God and actually was in a, a literal fight with God. Uh, not necessarily like a fight fight, but a, uh, a wrestling with God. The thing about it, let's continue reading, verse 31. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Kenyon, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the signet of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the signet of the hip. That's not a command that we should not eat a certain uh, portion of uh, meat. It's not a command, it's just saying that the people of Israel to the day of that Genesis was written, that they were not eating that part of the beast because of uh, what had happened to Jacob. It's just a tradition they had. It's not a commandment of God. So what was happening here is because the presence of the Lord and that Jacob was so close to God that he could wrestle with the Lord, touch the Lord, see the Lord, and receive mercy and grace, whereas it could have killed anybody else. But the presence of God can cause sickness. Now, we know sin can cause sickness, amen, but the presence of God can also cause sickness. That the presence of God can cause a heart attack, death, immediate death from a strong presence of God. Uh, Even what may seem almost like a panic attack, but not really the same as a panic attack, uh, God's presence can cause that. God's presence can cause great fear and shaking and trembling in the presence of God. In this case, it caused a physical dislocation of the hip for Jacob. It's a closeness that, you know, because people always want to put God at a distance because he is so holy and reverent. I recognize the fact that God is totally holy clean and reverent. But he is still our dad. He is still our father. And being our father and closer than a friend and closer than a brother, we should be able to wrestle with the Lord and and, and pour pour out our heart to him and 
tell him and be honest with him. There's no use in lying to God. If you're disappointed about something, you don't have to pretend with God because he knows what you're thinking. He knows your most subtle thoughts. He knows your blasphemous thoughts. He knows your weaknesses and your strengths. So you might as well just be honest with God and just come straight out and say, God, I'm disappointed that this prayer wasn't answered. I'm disappointed. I'm frustrated with this. I'm frustrated with that. I'm scared about this. I'm worried about this. I'm stressed about this. Whatever. Just be honest with God. Pour your heart out and receive that closeness. Receive that closeness with God. Like a, a son and father or a daughter and mother that may be extremely close. We need to be extremely close. And it says here in verse 30, he saw God face to face. That's relationship. Remember John, the apostle John, was laying his head on uh, the chest of Jesus. A closeness, a close, an intimate relationship with no division, nothing in between. Nothing in between. Our sin, sin shouldn't Sin does separate us from God. We shouldn't have anything to separate us from God. Lies, deceptions, dishonesty, holding back. We shouldn't have anything that would separate us from God. We need to strive with God. We need to strive for closeness with God, honesty with God, honesty, even that could kill us. Because this flesh is nothing. We must be willing to be dislocated for God. We must be willing to be a stranger in this world and not feel comfortable in this world. We must be willing to give up this world and give up the flesh and to die for God. We must be willing to sacrifice our flesh for God. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son of promise for God. Would we be willing, that's a good question to ask ourselves, would we do the same as Abraham? It's a good question to really, really, really examine ourselves. But we should never compare ourselves with anybody else because we all have different callings and a different place in our lives with God. And, and God has called every one of us at a different time in our life. We can't expect to be at the same location as somebody else when somebody else has uh, been in the truth or been in God or whatever for a longer period of time because we all start out as babes. We all have to go through that process. But we can examine ourselves, not comparing with somebody else, but we can examine ourselves, where am I with God? Where am I with God right now? And where do I need to be? How did I get there? And it could even be a little bit different for different people about the whole process of how you need to get there. Some people have to go to Africa. Some people have to go to China. Some people have to move to the north. Some people have to move to the south. Whatever. It's not the same, identical with everybody about how you get there. Except for, of course, there's some things in common, prayer and fasting, praising God. And praising God would be out there uh, maybe number one with uh, with everybody. 
There's power in praise. And we need time, private time in worship. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus, for liberty. Thank you, God, for liberty, mercy, grace. You see us naked, Lord. What is a cap? What are shoes? What are socks? What are pants? What is a shirt? What is a necktie? What are buttons? But just fleshly things. Praise God. We praise your holy name, Father God. Worship you in spirit and truth. Ask God to help me to deliver the fullness of this message. It's hard to do in the flesh. But help me, God, to deliver the fullness of this message. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. Let's go to Exodus 33. Exodus 33, and God willing, we'll try to read this whole chapter. Exodus 33, verse 1. Take his head off only because it's so hot and holds that heat. <laughs> Verse 1 Then the Lord spoke to Moses Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land of whom I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Ammonite, the Hittite the purpose of Trezizite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are a, a obstinate people. That is verse 3. It means stiff-necked, a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. And when the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning, and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. Should I go up in the midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now therefore, put off your ornaments from you, that I may know that I sh- what I should do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. And it called he called it the tent of meeting. Uh, so the tent of meeting was a good distance from uh, everybody else's campsites. It was holy and separate and sanctified unto the Lord, so it couldn't be in the midst of the camp. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Kind of like today that we have to travel outside the camp and outside our homes and cities, communities, uh, to get to the uh, tent of meeting 
are pavilions. Because it may be so defiled in the the other places, you know, so we have to travel farther. Verse 8, And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. So they were watching Moses. And they were curious about Moses going into the presence of God. Curious about that. Verse 9, and whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. So God appeared in the cloud and would appear to Moses. God, just like God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, now God appears to Moses in the cloud. And, and Moses sees God through these manifestations, through these physical manifestations. There's a lot of ways that we can see God. And verse 10, when all the people saw the pillow of cloud, they saw God too, standing at the entrance of the tent. All the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. So they worshiped from a distance whereas Moses could approach. Moses could get much closer to God. Moses was able to withstand the presence of God, but if other people had came near because of their sin, they would have died. So, but because Moses was very humble, the Bible says that Moses was very humble, uh, there was a, a closeness that he could have with God to where it could still cause physical defects because the body is weak, because the flesh is weak, and because the presence of God can kill the flesh. Know that the lake of fire will kill the flesh. Verse 11, thus the Lord spoke to, used to speak to Moses face to face. And remember Jacob saw God face to face. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Closeness, even as a man speaks to his friend. It wasn't necessarily so formal because formality can cut a distance between you and God. So we won't are speaking to God in our relationship with God, our prayers to God, should not be so formal. It don't always have to be eyes closed, face down. It can be looking up. It can be eyes wolfing. It can be while we're walking. It can be while we're driving, while we're working, while we're doing gardening or anything. A closeness to God to where it's not ritual. It don't have to be at a certain Time or a certain length. It can be a few seconds, minutes, hours. However, the Spirit moves you what you need to do at that time. Rather than the Muslims, that it has to be exactly at an exact time uh, every day, we were not like that. 
And so when Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would depart from the tent. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you would send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. To really know God is to know his ways. It's, it's not just knowing his name. It's, just not, it's not just knowing um, that he's real, that he exists. Because so many people think, as long as they know he exists, as long as they know his name is Jesus, that that's an, an, is enough. Well, that's not enough because the devils know it too and tremble. James, book of James says that even the devils know and even the devils believe and tremble. So we want to know his ways. And here Moses asks us, he, he's like venting his heart to God and, and asking what he needs. Let me know your ways that I may know you. To know someone is to know their ways, their strengths, their weaknesses, their problems, their faults. Where when we have a husband or wife, you know everything about them. 24 hours a day, you know what that person is really like in a way and in a manner that other people don't know. Other people may think they know that person when you work with them every day, when they're with your family, but nobody really knows anybody unless they live with them 24-7. So people that think they know God but don't they don't live with them 24-7. They just have a casual relationship. They're fans of God, but not followers of God. They don't live with them. They're not married. They're not part of the bride. They're just stranger in the night. They're just using God. But we want an intimate relationship true knowledge of God, 24-7, a lifestyle living for God. And it says here in verse 13, Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For now, uh, so Moses is like, we can't do it without you. We need you to go with us. Verse 16, for now then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people. It is not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. 
to God's presence, uh, Moses is like, people will know that we are your people because you are with us. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. I will grant what you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. I know you personally. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. So Moses wanted more. Moses wanted more. Something that was forbidden of other people. Something that other people could not have. So everybody else in the camp could not have this. Moses wanted to go deeper. Moses wanted to go so deep that it could even possibly kill him. Moses knew. Everybody knew. Everybody knew that if you got too close to God, it could kill you. But Moses was not afraid of getting too close to God. Moses wanted it, even if it cost him his life. I pray you show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. God even gave Moses his real name first before anybody else. Before that time, people knew God only by uh, what would be in English, God Almighty. But they didn't really know his name. The name wasn't revealed until the burning bush. But for the first time, God was close enough to give him his real name. He built his real name to Moses. And Moses had that special relationship with God even early on. And it says here in verse 19, he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion, meaning I will select who to be close to. I will select who to judge, who to condemn, who to punish, and who to be friends with. That is what God is saying. Verse 20, But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. So God is like, We've got to be careful here. My presence could kill you. Verse 21, Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. It's on the rock that we could see God. Jesus is the rock. It's on the rock that we could come closer to God enough to see him without dying. Verse 22, And it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will cut you in the cleft of the rock, in the cave, in a hiding place, in a place of safety, in this place, and cover you with my hand. Protection in that cave. Protection in the rock. Protection in Christ Jesus until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will even... You will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Even as we're going to read here in a few minutes, God willing, that Moses' face, after he saw God, Moses' face shone. We know in the book of Revelation how that the book of the face 
of God shines with brilliance. The face, the eyes, the mouth, that is the countenance of man. And that is the countenance of God. Even though God's entire being is light and fire and water, wind, but the face of God is more so. The countenance of God is more so. That the face of God is an even deeper relationship. And is even more dangerous and could kill more easily. So God is like, I'll just let you see my back, but your face, my face, shall not be seen. Chapter 34, let's go to verse 29. 34, 29, Exodus 34, 29. Exodus 34, 29, reading from the New American Standard Bible. It says, It came about when Moses was coming down from the Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony, talking about the Ten Commandments, were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain. This was the second time that he had been up on the mountain. First time he came down and, of course, broke commandments when he seen the people worshiping the golden calf. This is the second time that he's coming down from the mountain. This time he was out there 40 days and 40 nights, even fasting in verse 28. And God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own fingers. Whereas all the ordinances, all the temporary things of the Old Covenant was written only by Moses and spoken by Moses and delivered to the people by Moses. But the Ten Commandments was written by the very hand of God. God was writing in stone the, the eternal Ten Commandments that thou should not kill, that should not commit adultery, that should not bear false witness, which still exists today, written in stone by the finger of God. And it says here that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So the presence of God, even just the back, part of God, just from a distance, even sheltered in a cave, even sheltered and from a distance and just the backside of God, still made the face of Moses shine. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them. And Aaron and all the rulers and the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out, spoke to the sons of Israel what he had then commanded. The sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. So in the presence of God, Moses didn't need the veil. 
he didn't need to hide anything. And he, he didn't need nothing to separate or to hinder. But when he left the presence of God and went to the people, he had to put a veil over his face. I believe there was more than one reason. I believe there was multiple reasons for that. But we know that New Testament says one of the reasons is because the glory and the light that was shining on Moses' face was fading. Because the old covenant is only temporary. It fades away. So we go from glory to glory from the Old Testament, Old Covenant rather, to the New Covenant. But that same scripture in Corinthians says that some people are still blinded by that brightness and glory of the Old Covenant. By the reading of the Old Covenant, by the reading of the Old Testament, some people are still blinded from that, even though that has faded away. So even though we can learn things about God, and we can learn the Ten Commandments, we can learn about God and His ways and some of His commandments, and by reading the Old Testament, but we have to be careful that we don't put so much focus on the Torah, on the things, the ordinances, the temporary things that have faded away. We have to be careful how we read, how much we read of the old covenant uh, ordinances and stuff like that. We want our focus to be on the source of the light. We don't want Hebrew roots. We don't want to be followers of the Jews. We don't want to be followers of the Hebrews or physical Israel. We want to be followers of the light, of the spiritual principle of why the law was given in the first place. The spirit of the law, the letter of the law kills, but the spirit of the law gives life. Let's go to the book of Daniel, chapter 5. Daniel, chapter 5. God willing, we'll read the whole chapter here of Daniel chapter 5, verse, starting in verse 1. Daniel 5, verse 1 says, Belshazzar, the king, this was uh, a king sometime after uh, King, uh, king Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Uh, Belshazzar, the king, this is the last king of Babylon before they was taken over by the uh, Iranian Media Persia Empire. So this Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. And when Belajar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, not really his immediate father, the, the, the Hebrew word for this means an ancestor. 
history shows that there were actually several different kings in between Nebuchadnezzar and this guy. So as an ancestor, a forefather, which Nebuchadnezzar, his forefather, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them to defile the vessels of the temple. Then they brought the gold vessels that he had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them, not only himself, but even all his servants and everybody, a major defilement of the things that was supposed to be devoted to the service of the Lord. And verse 4, they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, all these demons, the fallen angels, the false gods, the Assyrian gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Sounds like witchcraft to me. Verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand, this is the hand of God, the same hand that wrote the Ten Commandments in stone, the same hand that wrestled with Jacob. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite of the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand, even as Moses saw only the back of God. This king could only see the back of the hand of God that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale. And it's, now here is physical ailment because of the presence of God. And the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him. And his hip joints, even with Jacob, and his hip joints went flat. And his knees began knocking together. And the king called aloud to bring in the kajurs, the musicians, the sorcerers, the Chideans, and the diviners. Chidean there is not a race of people. It is a word that means sorcerers, magicians. That is what that word means. A lot of people think it's a race of people that have nothing to do with it. There's no such thing as a race called Chidean. Uh, that word Chad means moon worshiper. These are moon worshipers. These are Muslims, to be honest with you, because Islam did not exist. I mean, Islam did not start just for Muhammad. History shows that the religion of Islam already existed before Muhammad was even born. The Catholic Church did not create it because the Catholic Church didn't exist to the Roman Empire. Islam is much older than the Catholic Church. These are Muslims. These are moon worshippers. And Muhammad, the only thing he did was uh, reframe Islam and change some of the doctrines and, and narrow down from 200 gods to one demon god of, of a moon worshiping Allah. And so all these people were called together. Instead of calling on God, instead of calling on the name of the Lord, he calls these astrologers, these moon worshippers, these magicians. And the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, and we read how the false wisdom of how the serpent was more subtle, more wise than all the beasts of the field. So this is not true wisdom. These are not true wise men. This is the wisdom of the world. This is the people of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
uh, of Babylon. Any man who can read this inscription, he said, any man who can read this inscription and explain this interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as a third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in. But they could not read the inscription or make known his interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed. And the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. And the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you, these people said, or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, or forefather, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him, talking about Daniel. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your forefather, your uh, forefather, the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chadidians, and dividers. So Daniel had been made ruler or governor over all of the servants of the king was over these people. He was given power and authority over the wicked. He was given power and authority over principalities and, and spirits. He was given power and authority over the evil and wicked people. Verse 12. This was because uh, extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of uh, ignorantness, and solving of difficult problems was found in this Daniel, whom the king named uh, this Babylonian name, Belshara, was Daniel's Babylonian uh, Syrian name. And let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. They had faith in the man of God. They knew he was different, stood out different from the wicked. They knew he had a personal relationship with a holy God. doesn't say nothing holy about false God. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel? Are you that Daniel? Who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom has been found in you. Just now the wise men and the cajorers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make this interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself, or give you rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God, grant it sovereignty, grant the grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your forefather. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and 
men of every language feared and trembled before him, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, whomever he wished he killed, and whomever he wished he spared alive, and whomever he wished he elevated, and whomever he wished he humbled. But his heart, Nebuchadnezzar's heart, was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, and he was disposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. Verse 21. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he, until he recognized that the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, his uh, and, uh, descendant, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this, but you have exalted yourself against the God of heaven, and you have brought the vessels of this house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, wood, iron, wood, stone, all these different gods which were the gods of the Muslims, which do not see, hear, or understand. And to this very day, they still have uh, the uh, stone, the black stone of Mecca, which cannot see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand, in whose hand your life breath is, in all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. This is the inscription that was written out. Many, many, to cut your higher sins. This is the interpretation of the message. Many means God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Teka, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians the people that would conquer his kingdom later that very night. The Iranians is who it's talking about. The Iranians came and invaded Babylon. And that became the next section of Daniel's statue. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a, a, a necklace of gold around his neck, even though it was a word of judgment. Even though it was a word saying, you're going to be destroyed, your kingdom's going to be destroyed, you're going to lose your kingship, you're going to lose all your power and authority, he still recognized that it was the truth. He still recognized that it was the truth and appreciated the truth for what it was, even though it condemned him. Something very unusual that you wouldn't hardly find in today's rulers, kingdoms of this world. Verse 29, And Belshazzar gave orders, and they cloaked Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. And that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, 
the moon-worshipping king, was slain. And so Darius the Median received the kingdom at about the age of 62. But that presence of the hand of God issued the death warrant for that Babylonian king because of his sin. That presence of God could give life or death according to how we are living and how we are serving God. But it can still cause death, even in the most righteous, if we, uh, if God was to shine his face and his front side uh, to us too close. Uh, but one of these days, if we're, well, one of these days, we are going to see that. One of these days, we're going to see his front side. One of these days, everybody is going to have to face Judgment Day, which will bring life or death according to how we have lived. On Judgment Day, according to how we have lived, the presence of God and the face of God bring life or death. Let's go to the book of 2 Thessalonians. Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. Reading from New American Standard Bible, the Thessalonians 2 8. Then that lawless one, talking about the son of perdition, the one people call the Antichrist, then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. It is the vision of God. It is the image of God. We know the Bible says that Jesus is the image of God. It is the appearance of the coming of Jesus Christ, the brightness of his face, will destroy the Antichrist, the son of perdition, because we know that he is wicked, as it says. So he cannot stand in the presence of God. And he doesn't even, really even have to, uh, he'll be thrown into that like a fire. But I believe he'll be dead before he even gets there, just like uh, a satellite can completely melt before it even gets into the sun, even into the presence of the sun, just from the external heat that you can only get so close to the sun before it would be completely destroyed. Just the appearance of God will be bright enough to destroy him, but he will be cast into the lake of fire. Book of John, chapter 3, let's turn there. John 3, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John 3.
starting in verse 22, verse 22 to 36. John 3, 22 to 36. Verse 22 says, And after these things Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. Now, Jesus himself was not physically, literally going out dunking people in the water, but he was baptizing people through the disciples. And the disciples were baptizing in his name, meaning two things using the name of Jesus, and doing so under his authority. And so it would be pronounced verbally that, do you want to be baptized like this, you know? Do you want to be baptized by him? They would understand, people back then understood, to be baptized by the servant is the same as being baptized by the master. So Jesus is baptizing, it says. But later on in chapter 4, verse 2, it says it was not Jesus himself baptizing, but his disciples. But people considered it, and God considered it. To be baptized by the servant was the same as to be baptized by the master. And so it is not I that baptized, but Jesus, Right? So Jesus is baptized through his servants here. In verse 23, John also is baptizing. So here you got two people baptizing. Jesus, actually all his disciples, and then John. Now John was also baptizing him and his servants. It wasn't always just John. John had servants that would baptize in his name, in the name of John. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was so much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples. See, he had servants. He had, his, he had followers. He had students. He had followers. And Paul did too. There's nothing wrong with that with a Jew, John's disciples, with a Jew about purification. There arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, talking about Jesus, is baptizing, and all are coming to him. So they kind of thought it was a contest or uh, that shouldn't be done or whatever. They kind of failed uh, competition there. Verse 27, And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ. He's telling his own disciples, I'm not God. I'm not Christ. I've already told you. I've confessed. I've admitted I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him, and he has he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the 
free hearing of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. In other words, because Christ has come, someone greater than John, we should be rejoicing and not feel threatened. This is a good thing. And verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. John recognized that he was only pointing to Christ and pointing to things greater than his own ministry. He must increase, but I must decrease. We must be willing to decrease. We must be willing to give up his flesh. We must be willing to give up our cars. We must be willing to give up the physical, material possessions of this world that hinder us from the fullness of God. We must be willing to give up the veil, the different things that we've been reading about today that they gave up for God. We must be willing to give up anything for God. Not increasing ourselves, not trying to lift ourselves up, even though we can magnify who we are in God. We can magnify our power and our authority in God. We can magnify who we are in God. But as long as it's not a self-centered, as long as it's not true pride, but we must be willing to surrender to God and give up a lot. We must be willing to sacrifice. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of what he testifies, and no one receives his testimony, he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Meaning that it is possible to receive the Spirit of God without measure. But you know what would happen if that happened? It's possible, but it would kill you. Because the only time that you're going to receive the Spirit of God without measure is at the resurrection. That's what we're striving for. We need to be striving and wrestling with God until we come so close that every bone in our body is dislocated and we rise from that grave and we surrender the flesh and we cease to exist and he has increased, that he has increased without measure, that his spirit is increased without measure. Now, in this life, when we are baptized under immersion of water for the remission of sins in the name of Jesus Christ, we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, but only to a certain measure. We receive the first measure when we make that decision, that we surrender to God, and I want to repent, and I do repent as much as I can at the moment, and I'm going to be baptized and give my life to God. I'm going to be crucified and resurrected with Christ at baptism. But we must endure until the end. 
So from that from that moment of prayer, a little bit is given, a measure is given. Then baptism, another measure is given. We continue to read and study the Word of God, a more measure is given. We pray and we fast, more measure is given. We praise God, more measure is given. We continue our walk and we say no to temptation, more measure is given. And we continue in that and as a as the water comes from the fountain and filling up his body, continue to grow and rise and appear in Christ. We can't handle it all at one time. And we have to start with the milk, but then we have to receive that meat, and we have to receive that meat, or else we'll stay babes forever and die because we never wanted to grow in the truth, that we didn't test our, our knowledge, that we didn't test our doctrines, that we were satisfied with traditional Babylonian doctrines. We were satisfied with what our parents gave us when we were children. We can't be satisfied with the fairy tales of the world. We can't be satisfied with traditional doctrine. We have to seek the meat, the deep things of God. We have to ask ourselves everything that we have ever been taught by man and woman and say, is this really true? What does the Bible really say? And seek in prayer, in fasting, in worship, in praise, in study, in reading of the Word of God, growing as a child, being educated in the Scriptures, growing by the Word of God and not by the Word of man, growing by the water of life and the spirit of life and the energy of life, growing by the light of God and not by the light of man, but by growing by the Word of God growing by that spirit, feeding on that spirit, thirsting for more, wanting more, wanting to come closer to God, even though it will crucify our flesh, even though it will send us to the grave, even though it will cause trouble with the world, trouble with our parents, because we no longer listen to them, because we honor them, we love them, we pray for them, we seek their salvation. But God is more important. I will put God first. I will put the truth first before the doctrines of man. It is God first and seeking first the kingdom of God, even if it takes fasting, even if it takes growing more in fasting, and even if it takes pushing away the plate. I will put God first before the calories of the physical. We need the calories of the Holy Ghost. We need that energy, that drink that will fill us and fill our void of life, which could not be satisfied by women and men from our previous lives, that could not be satisfied by TV, even though it may have been fun, it may have been enjoyment, but it corrupted us, and it planted bad seeds, which we're all still fighting. We're all still fighting all those bad seeds of Babylon, bad seeds of Hollywood, bad seeds, so many bad seeds, that are still growing in me and you. Bad seeds that are still growing in us that we need to weed out. We need to weed those things out by fasting from TV, from fasting from movies, from fasting from the things of this world and let those things starve to death and feed us with the spiritual food of the bread of life which will also help to kill out the weeds. The truth is a weed killer to the doctrines of man. Amen. Praise God.
So we see here in John, it says here, in verse 34, For he whom God has sent spakes the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. He can give the Spirit without measure. It is possible, it is possible to go deeper. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son, it goes much deeper than belief. Even the devils believe. It's not enough to just believe. Faith without works is dead. We have to obey. It says, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God. And that wrath of God happens at the exact same time as the marriage supper. That marriage supper will be life to the saints and wrath to the wicked. Amen. Now let's look at the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Revelation 1, verse Revelation one seventeen. And when I saw him, John saw God. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. A terrifying sight. God is awesome. And he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. The devil never had those things. Babylon is a liar. Let every man be a liar and let God be true. There's not one scripture in the whole Bible that says that the devil ever had the keys to these things or that they or that God and the devil wrestled. It's simply not in the Bible. We need to rid ourselves of the fairy tales of childhood, grow and mature in the Word of God by eating the Word of God, by reading, studying, praying, fasting, praising, worshiping, growing in the truth, getting into the deep meat of the Word of God. Verse 19, Therefore write the things which you have seen, and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. So God is telling John to write down things. But we see here in verse 17 that the appearance of God made John fall. I fell at his feet. He didn't fall backwards. He wasn't slain because he wasn't wicked. But he fell forward as all the saints do like a dead man. He didn't actually die, but it was traumatic. It was a traumatic experience 
the presence of God, to see God, to feel the presence of God, to feel his presence, sometimes can make you feel like you're going to die. It can make you feel like you're going to blow up. It can make you feel like you're going to have a heart attack. It can make you even feel sick. It can be so overwhelming. And there have been times that I felt that presence so intense that I literally said, God, don't kill me because the glory of the Lord was so powerful. And I feel it so powerful right now. And anybody can have that. Anybody on this earth can have that because I know, I testify, I confess that I am chief of sinners. In many ways, I'm still chief of sinners. I've still got things to purge out. I have not yet obtained. I am not yet there. I'm still striving with the Lord. I'm still wrestling. But I am striving to obtain. I am striving to get there. Amen. We are seeking. We are seeking a home. We are seeking eternal paradise of the new heaven and new earth. Praise God. Now let's go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. This is what they call the resurrection chapter. And it's very, very, very important. This chapter should be a requirement of anybody that claims to be Christ's. Uh, Of course, all the pages of the Bible is a requirement for those that claim to be his. 1 Corinthians Corinthians 15, starting in verse 35. One Corinthians 15, praise the name of Jesus, praise God. Starting in verse 35 and going to the end of the chapter, God willing. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But someone would say, how are the dead raised? And people still ask this question today, mockers and doubters. And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, tall says, you fool. Paul was a man of God, wrote most of the New Testament. People don't understand that you can rebuke, rebuke ignorance and foolish things. We have power over the wicked. We have power and authority over everything. We have dominion over this earth. In verse 36, you fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. We have to die, except for some people that will not taste death, but even their body will still die. They just won't go to sleep. Their soul will not suffer sleep, but their bodies will still die. Every one of us, if we want the kingdom of God, we must die. This flesh, that is, must die. Verse 37, 
And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. Verse 38. But God gives a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of his own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another fish. Here is solid scripture proof against uh, evolution. This is solid scripture against the theory of evolution that we come from fish, that we come from apes, that we come from birds. You know, science tries to say men come from birds. And other scientists say men come from fish. Other scientists say men come from apes. All that's covered in one verse here, that we don't come from beasts or birds or fish. They are a separate flesh. Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies, talking about planets, moons, and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. So maybe that might even be talking about angels. Verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star difference from star in glory. There's the bright stars, the dim stars, the little ones, the large ones, the different colors. Different stars are different because there's different rewards for different people. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It's interesting that it talks about the stars, the planets, the moons and stuff when it's talking about the resurrection because that is going to be some of our rewards. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Talk about the first resurrection. So in the first resurrection, we will not have any need to be reunited with our fleshly bodies, even though Babylon says that our fleshly bodies must be our spiritual bodies and then separate. <laughs> Why get together if you're just going to separate a second later? It don't make sense what they teach. What raises is not the flesh. It says so here. Here's good verses to use against that argument. It is raised spirit, not flesh. It says so. So that flesh, there's no such thing as a physical resurrection in the first resurrection. Now, in the second resurrection, yes, there is. But in the first, it's only a spirit resurrection that comes up out of the grave. Our soul rests in the grave, not in heaven. Our soul, our spirit, our inner being, the spirit that's in us, is wherever uh, either at the grave or at the point of death. I'm not for sure if it stays. If you die in a car wreck on the side of the road, I'm not for sure if it sleeps there under the ground. Or I think uh, I had this figured out one time that it actually travels with your body and wherever they plant it, that is where your soul rests. I have to 
think about that again. I believe it's like that. It says here in verse 45, So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul, and the last Adam, from Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The same is true with the law. You had the physical law, and then the spiritual law, even though the physical law was always meant to apply, be applied in a spiritual manner in the spirit principality in which it was given. It was always meant for that. But nevertheless, some of the law, over 600 commandments, were given that was so temporary, although some of those can still be applied and some of them should still be applied for one reason or another, but not all. But there are so many of those that were carnal. So many of those natural, physical things were so carnal, so fleshly, that it was only for a time and a season and a reason for primitive men. But now, the new covenant law, which still exists with the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath, and the Holy Days, these are life-given through Jesus Christ. Verse 47, the first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. Uh, this could also be applied not only to Adam, it could be applied to Moses. Verse 48, as is the earthly, so also those who are of, who are earthly. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Right now, we bear the image of the earthly, but we want to bear the image of the heavenly, eventually. That is our goal. And to reach our goal, we must die. To reach our goal, we must let go of the earthly. To reach our goal, we must be willing to let go of the flesh. Verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. That is, every true, mature, fully grown, ready, spiritual human. Spiritual human. Because all you got to do is shed your skin. Amen. That when you get, when your spirit gets to that brightness that it needs to get, to that measure that it needs to get, to that maturity, you see, put aside the flesh and think about who you really are inside. When that inner man gets, that spirit gets to where he needs to get, then he won't need the flesh anymore. And all you got to do is shed the flesh. So we have to feed the Spirit. And be changed. Verse 52, in a moment, verse 52, in a moment, and the twinkling of an eye. We will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. It never says that Jesus will appear at a twinkling of an eye. 
Everybody takes it, completely distorts it, and says Jesus will appear. And he doesn't say that. It says we will be changed in the twinkling of our eyes at when? At the last trumpet. Talking about the seventh trumpet, the last trumpet. There's no other way that this can be interpreted. So this right here tells you when the resurrection is for the saints. There's no other way this can be interpreted, but people do try to misinterpret it on purpose. On purpose, they twist the word of God and try to say that this is some other kind of trumpet that is not talking about the seven trumpets. And they lie. It's just a barefaced lie. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on the immortality. We are mortal. And our soul, our spirit, is mortal. But people have told me and people teach in Babylon, people that believe that you burn forever and ever and ever in hell and you never, never die in hell, they believe and teach that your soul is immortal. immortal. They teach that your soul is eternal, that your soul cannot die in heaven or hell or anywhere, that your soul will never die. That's exactly what all of Babylonian Babylon teaches. But this says opposite. This is an excellent verse. To have bookmarked, have saved, for when they teach that your soul cannot die, and you, and you say, well, if your soul cannot die in the lake of fire, does that mean that your soul is immortal? They will say yes. Then you point out this verse, that this mortal must put on immortality. We don't already have it. We have to obtain it. We don't already have immortality. This soul, that inner man, can die. Fear not him which is able to destroy only the body, but fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That soul can be killed. And so it says we must put on immorality. Immortality. Verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the rock, through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our refuge, our hiding place. And it is not any physical location that will protect us. It is not because of so many miles from the highway, or there's so many trees, or that, that there's a cave or not a cave, or that there's uh, waters there, or that it's this, or that it's that, or it supplies, or this, or that. It's only Christ Jesus that will protect us. If we go into a place, a wilderness, that is ordained by God, but we're still rebellious, we'll still die. We still won't survive. We'll might as well just stay home. But if we go to an ordained place of protection with repentance, and continuing to grow in the truth, and continuing to feed the Spirit and receive the Spirit of God, continue to walk by the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath and Holy Days, continue to seek and mature, 
continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit, continue and continue that until we reach the immortality and imperishable, then yes, God will protect us in his ordained place. And some people are meant to stay home. Some people are meant to go different locations. Some people are meant to stand in the midst of the storm. Every person or is different. Every person is different. So we have to seek. Seek and you shall find. Seek and you shall find. And when you find, you'll be determined in it. When you find, you will be established in it and you will stand and you shall not be moved once you find what God's will is for you. Are you meant for this? Are you meant for that? Are you meant to preach? Are you meant to sing? Are you meant to testify? Are you meant to speak in tongues? Are you meant to give interpretation of tongues? Are you meant for the gift of healing or administration or office or prayer warrior or this or that or this or that? Or wilderness or standing in the midst of tribulation or to go here or to go there? Seek and you shall find. When you find, you will be established in it and you shall not be moved out of it if it is truly of the Lord. That God's will will be done. And if we find ourselves in a situation we should have not put ourselves in, we thought we was in God's will and we was not, God is the adjuster. God will adjust it. He will move mountains. He will move valleys. He will move streams. He will move people. He will move towns. He will move planets. He will move everything, anything that needs to be moved to bring us into alignment. He is the ruler. He is the rod. His staff and his rod uh, guides us, directs us. He is the shepherd. He will guide us, even though sometimes the sheep will step out of line, even though the sheep will try to go the wrong way, and we'll get lost. And the man, the prodigal son, will get lost, but he will come back. And God is not willing for any man to perish, but for all to have everlasting life. Some will perish of their own choosing. That even though God continues to chastise and God continues to realign and God continues, 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 but the person stays willingly in rebellion, those are the only ones that's going to end up in the lake of fire. Only one. Only the extreme wicked. Only those that said and knows be like, yes, God moved me. Yes, God did this. Yes, God did this. But I choose to stay in my wickedness. I choose to stay in this or this or that or what that they should not be in. But God is the great adjuster. So fear not that if you get out of line that you're going to stay in it because you won't unless you are the extreme wicked. And there are such people. And I think we know whether we're that or not. And those that are deceived right now they won't always be deceived. There's a reason that they're deceived right now. We must be willing and patient and long-suffering with them because it's not meant for us to drag and pull and fight with these people to try to get them in the first resurrection. They're not meant for the first resurrection. We're stepping out of order. We're stepping out of God's order to try to force somebody in the first resurrection when God didn't ordain them for the first resurrection. It's not meant for them. We could hurt them. We could actually prevent their uh, eventual salvation because we're trying to force them in a wrong order. 
There's an order to the resurrection, an order to life, an order to everything. And no man can come to God unless the Father calls him. It's not us to do that calling. It is God to do that calling. But we must still evangelize. We must still speak forth the truth with everybody and call everybody to the marriage supper of the Lamb of God and hope the best for them and pray for them that they would reach the better resurrection. But we've got to have the balance. We've got to have the balance to, to where we know and understand that we don't have to see every family member saved in this life. It's not meant to see every family member saved in this life. It's just simply not meant to be. It's like trying to force uh, certain uh, vegetables and fruit in the garden to grow in the spring when it's supposed to grow in the fall. We're trying to plant things out of order. So we've got to be careful about that. And we must be willing to eventually die and give up the flesh and the things of the flesh. And that's what's meant by our baptism. We're supposed to start dying right then. Our crucifixion and our death to the flesh should start at baptism. Now let's go to, let's see, what verse we in in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 57. But thanks to God and who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast. Ah, immovable. I didn't know it said that <laughs> in that verse. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain for the Lord. Our toil is not in vain. We've got to be hopeful. We've got to be positive. Philippians 4 says to put our mind on the positive things. Things that are of good report. Things that are praiseworthy. The victories that we are having. The, the, the small seeds that we do see. People listening. People not interjecting no more. But be thankful for the, for the first time that we see the little thing coming up out of the ground. Be thankful for the little plant. Be thankful for the little thing. When the second temple was built, it was a little temple. God talks about that and the scriptures talked about that. Sometimes it's got to be a little thing. Be thankful for the little thing. Now let's go to the book of 1 John over there next to the book of Revelation. 1 John. 1 John 3. Verse 1 through 3. 1 John 3, first three verses. 1 John chapter 3, first three verses. You need to get a drink. You can. You're welcome to get your drink. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us 
that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Remember, we read a scripture earlier that teaches your ways that I may know you. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. It don't know his ways, therefore it don't know our ways. It don't understand the Sabbath and stuff. They don't know him. Verse 2, beloved, verse 2, beloved, we, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but know that when he appears, even though his appearance will destroy the son of perdition, his appearance will change us to immortal, and we will live. Cloud was darkness to the Egyptians, but it was light to the Israelites. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We're going to see the face of God, which will destroy the flesh. And we won't have to shrink back. We won't have to worry about whether we die if we're living right for him and called to live. You know that you're called to live and not die, spiritually speaking. You're called to live and not die. So what is a car wreck? What is cancer? What is a tree falling on you? What is any of these things? Nonchalant, vanity, nothing to fear, nothing to fear. We shouldn't fear death, except for the second death. Now, if we are the children of God, we're going to appear like him. Don't you look like your dad? Don't you look like your parents? So, we're going to shine. We're going to be powerful. We're going to be King, rulers. We're going to have thrones and we're going to rule over the universe. We're going to rule over stars, over solar systems, planets. We're going to rule over others, over other beings. We're going to rule over angels. Says, Don't you know that you're going to judge angels? We're going to be rulers. We are the children of God. That's something to really think about. Children of God. We're going to look like him. We're going to appear like him. Now let's go to Daniel 12. Verse 1 through 3. Daniel 12, 1 through 3. Now, at that time, Daniel 12, 1 through 
12. Verse 1. Now at that time, Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. I believe that this is an actual archangel of God. It's not Jesus Christ himself, like some denominations say, but rather it is an angel. Daniel 12, verse 1, And at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, and at that time, your people, everyone, talking about the great tribulation, that there's going to be a great time. Matthew 24 talks about a time worse than ever had existed before and ever shall be again. But then it jumps because a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. So it jumps from the great tribulation to the resurrection. Some people, I'm sure, try to use this for preacher rapture, not realizing that it jumps in time. So it goes from the great tribulation, and it says, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life. But now, it jumps again, a thousand years and hundred, to the second resurrection when it says, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So that jumps to the lake of fire. You've got Great tribulation, the first resurrection, millennia and a hundred years, the great white throne judgment, the lake of fire. But it does show that there's two resurrections here. And only some rise in the first and some rise in the second. And those that rise in the second have a possibility of the lake of fire. So you do see the two resurrections there. Verse 3. And those that who have insight true knowledge and insight into the truth will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So we're going to shine bright even as God shines bright. And our counter will be very bright even as God's counter shines very bright. I believe different people's brightness will be different, even as there are differences between stars, even as there are bright stars and dim stars. I believe that some people's brightness will be brighter than others. I believe some people will be given a town, a community, a field, a county, a state. Other people will be given nations, planets, moons, different people, a different measure of reward. Now let's go to the book of Romans, chapter 8, and we'll conclude in Romans 8. We'll read that whole chapter. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Romans 8.
Romans 8, verse 1. God willing, we will read the whole chapter. Very important chapter. Romans 8, verse 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that you have freedom and liberty to do anything you want. Some people think that's actually what it means. They actually interpret it that way, some people. It only means that if you are truly living for God, if you're in Christ Jesus, you abide, you live in Him, you live with Him 24-7, you are His bride, He is your bridegroom, and you are obeying your husband, if you are obeying the bridegroom, if you are obedient to Him, if you are in Christ Jesus, then you live in forgiveness. You live in mercy. You live in grace. But you've got to continue to be obedient to Him. Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. That don't mean there's no commandments, there's no do's, there's no don'ts. It just means that the blood of Jesus has forgiven you. That the blood of Jesus washes away sin and there is no longer going to be a need for punishment because that you are set free from sin, and therefore you are set free from the lake of fire. Verse 3, For the, what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The law saved nobody. The law could not save anybody. That, that nothing keeping all the commandments, keeping the Sabbath, keeping the Ten Commandments, keeping uh, obedience, just being obedient didn't save anyone, but rather uh, a heartfelt, true, sincere spirit for God. We've got to be obedient, but it's the Spirit. Verse 4. Verse 5, verse 5, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So we've got to set our things, our heart, our mind, our life on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Now pay attention to this verse because this is very, very important, verse 6. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So, we've got to make for sure that our mind is not set on, and am I going to lose this? Am I going to lose my car? Am I going to lose my house? Am I going to lose this? Am I going to lose that? Am I going to die? Am I going to lose my flesh? Am I going to lose my leg? Am I going to lose this? Am I going to lose that? Am I going to lose my income? We gotta set our mind on the spirit. Those things are praiseworthy. Those things are worthy to think about. Those things that give eternal life. We put our mind on the spirit. We gotta put our mind on the finish line, on the kingdom. We put our our, line, our mind on Christ, on Jesus, on love, on mercy, on grace, on peace. Yes, we have to acknowledge that the great tribulation is coming. Yes, we have to acknowledge that we gotta pay our bills. We have to acknowledge that the car needs this or car needs that. We've got to acknowledge things. There is a healthy concern that we have to have. We have to be responsible people. But 
we can't let none of this burden us because even in our everyday lives or about what's going to happen in the future, because we have our mind on the finish line. We have our mind on the finish line. We know that everything the Supreme Court is doing, everything Obama is doing, everything of Iran, all the false prophets, all the false teachers, all of Babylon, all the lies, all the deceptions, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, the wickedness, the fallen angels, everything that's ever happened, is happening, will happen, is ordained. It's not by accident. It's not coincidence. God is in control. And Obama is supposed to be president. He's supposed to be wicked. He's supposed to be lawless. The Supreme Court was supposed to do what they did. All these things must happen that Scripture be fulfilled. All these things must occur. And even if we go down the line of worse things to happen, those things must, 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 must occur. So what do we do? We embrace it. We embrace it head on. Head on. We embrace it and say, okay, we're going to see these things. See, this is the opposite of preacher rapture thinking. Preacher rapture thinking is put your head in the sand. No, I don't want to look at that. No, I don't want to embrace it. No, I don't want to acknowledge it. I just pretend it don't exist. But reality, we embrace it. We must embrace reality and say it must happen. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. It's going to have to happen. And let us glory in our sufferings. Let us glory in our tribulations. Let us glory that I'm in pain because it inspired a sermon that there's a reason for it, that I've been wrestling with God, that I've been wrestling, sitting still <laughs> in a lawn chair with a laptop, a uh, heavy laptop with a uh, guy like this table that I sit my laptop on the table. I bought it. It's a laptop table where I put my mouse move it around, put my phone on there and all that, ink pen and everything. So it's a laptop and table sitting on me and sitting there from morning to night, except for when I get up and stretch, go to the restroom, eat, take small breaks every now and then and everything. But basically wrestling with the Lord and wrestling with people uh, and so forth. But it's all meant to be. And so it's a good thing, it's not a bad thing. And so the Word of God came out of this, and the Word of God has been fulfilled in it, and it's things that needs to be said that I would have never said if I hadn't gone through this tribulation with my head. So I praise God that I'm in pain. I praise God that my head feels like it's disjointed sometimes. I praise God because it had to be so that this Word would come to be. So thank God for this. And thank God for my HIV because it slowed me down. I prayed during that time before I got that. I prayed even when I was in my sin and in my wickedness to do whatever it took to slow me down to where it wasn't so bad anymore, to where I wasn't living sin so more, to where I wasn't living sin day and night, where I didn't do all the habits of the world and live in sin, but slow me down. And I said that prayer.
to God afflicted. So I thank God for my trials, my sicknesses, and diseases. I thank God for anything that happens to me because God is in control. If I get in a car wreck, lose my legs, lose my feet, God is in control, and it's what needs to happen to me. I've got a friend. I've got a friend who lost all ten toes due to frostbite because of his drugs. And he is all miserable, blaming God, blaming God, blaming God, blaming God, not blaming the drugs, not blaming his choices, not blaming himself, but blaming God. But who was it that made himself homeless? Who decided to do the drugs? Who decided to live in sin? Who decided to not do what he needed to do? All him. It wasn't the devil. It wasn't God. It was him. So, he should be thankful that he lost all his toes. It should have woke him up, shouldn't it? That should have woke him up. That should have been the moment in his life to where he said, look what has happened to me because of my choices. Not because of God, not because of the devil, but because of I've done wrong. I've done wrong. I've suffered the consequences in the flesh. I need to repent and to live right. But no, he stayed in his rebellion. He stayed in his rebellion. So we need to be thankful for things that may not be pleasant. We need to be thankful for things that can strengthen us. That could have strengthened him in God, but it didn't because of his heart. But it could have strengthened him in God. It could have brought him to Christ. But it didn't. That's his own choice. So anything that goes on in our life, if we lose our parents, we lose our family, we lose our friends, we lose our car, we lose our house, we lose our job, we get sick, we do this, we do that, whatever happens in life, we've got to remember God is in control and this can bring me to a more closeness God. It can bring me closer to God. We have that choice in everything that happens, whether it's going to bring us closer to God or farther away from God because of our rebellion, because of our stiff neck. Are we always going to live outside the camp of God? Are we always going to have to praise God on the outside of the camp? Or are we going to praise God on the inside of the camp, regardless of any obstacle in our life, regardless of anything that happens to us, that we're steadfast for the Lord, that our minds are going to stay in the Lord even if the ground shakes, even if it's a 9.0 earthquake, even if it's off the rector scale, that we ain't going to be, oh my God, that we ain't going to grieve as others, that we ain't going to be so overwhelmed and overburdened because of the mushroom cloud, but rather when we see that mushroom cloud that we all know, God is in control. That has to happen. Stop praying for things to not happen and embrace them and and realize that it has to happen and embrace it and use it for the Lord and say, that's going to bring me closer to God because this happened, because that happened, because this is happening. It's going to bring me closer to God. Everything that happens, both good and bad, to bring us closer to God because it is possible to receive God without measure. And that only happens by taking everything to praise the Lord. 
And what's that scripture? There's two scriptures like this. What's that scripture that says, whatever you do, do it unto the Lord, basically. Do it unto the Lord. So whether it be good or bad, do it unto the Lord. That whatever happens in life, take it to God. Give him your burden. Now, in chapter 8, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. For those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. 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 Unspeakable peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the Ten Commandments, the law of God. For it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You are born again. You are in the spirit. You are a new person, a new creation, a new man, a new creature. If you're in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The people call them Christian all the long. If they don't have the Holy Spirit, they don't belong to him. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, by sin death entered into the world. Body is dying because of sin. Yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. That can be applied so many ways about legalism and sin and worldliness and cardinalness. So many ways that can be applied. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, So we are children of God being transformed to his image. We want to be the image of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Fear is bondage and where there is perfect love, the scripture says, where there is perfect love, there is no fear. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again that you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, hires also hires of God and fellow hires with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, we need to suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. If I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So it doesn't matter how bad it gets. It don't matter how bad, how sick we get. It don't matter if we get on the deathbed. 
It don't matter if we lose all our family, all of our cattle like Job did. It don't matter if all of our brothers sell us into slavery. It don't matter. But the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Talking about that we're going to be turned, that we're going to shed our skin, that we're going to shed this carcass, that we're going to shed this flesh, and our real spirit being is going to burst out. It's going to be shining light. It's going to be bright. It's going to be king and ruler over dominions and over kingdoms. We're going to be rulers under Jesus Christ. Praise God, the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared. The sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory, the finished one, that will be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of the creation, we anxiously long for that time, willing to give this time up. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Our rewards are eagerly waiting for us. Verse 20, for the creation was not, for the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him, Satan, who subjected it in hope that he would become God. Verse 21, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. To bear forth a child, you must endure pain. To bring life into the world, there must be pain. To bring new life, there must be pain. To bring forth the kingdom of God into the fullness over the entire world, there must be great pain. We must endure a childbirth. We must endure a transition, a shaking that will completely transform all of creation. We must go through that childbirth. And it may be very painful, but what great joy. Weeping may may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Verse 23, and not only this, but we... Also, we ourselves, having the first fruit, talking about the first resurrection of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, first fruits is also talking about receiving a small measure and then increasing in us. Grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, turning in our flesh. Verse 24, for in hope we have been saved. The hope that is seen is not hope. In other words, we've got a future to look forward to that we cannot yet see, but we believe. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. For perseverance, to press through, we wait eagerly for the finish line. But we must continue. That word perseverance means to press through and make it through by pressing through. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. The Spirit helps our weaknesses. It is only natural to get weak. It's only natural to grow weary sometimes. It's only natural 
to have weakness in, weaknesses in the mind, in the spirit, and in the flesh, because we're still in the flesh, and we're still growing and growing and growing and maturing. But the spirit helps. The spirit helps. It's like fresh water on a hot day. Spirit helps. So any time that we're weak, any time we're burdened, any time we're anxious, any time that we have a, a problem, a situation of any kind, physical or spiritual, the answer is Jesus Christ. The answer is get you a drink of the Spirit. The Spirit helps her. How do you get a drink of the Spirit? You fall on your knees, you pray, you read the Bible, you sing, you praise God, you worship God, you lift your hands, and your burdens just roll away. So many times that I was so miserable, such a hard time, and I just praised God and everything just went away. Everything just flew away. Draw nearer to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. You've got to draw near to God first. Draw near to God, then resist the devil, and he will flee. So the answer is the Spirit. Verse 26, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us, but groanings too deep for words. That can be applied towards speaking of tongues, but it don't have to be limited to tongues. Another way that it can be used is that in our weak moments that we just pour out our spirit to God, that we just pour ourselves out and in closeness and be honest with him. I'm disappointed, I'm frustrated, I'm scared, I'm this, I'm concerned, I'm this and this and that, and just pour ourselves out. And these groanings, you may not know how to pray. It may not even be tongues. These groanings, it's like, oh, God, help me. God, help me. Please help me. Please help me. There's time for that. We need to cry out to God. In fact, this ain't so much a time of celebration as it is a time to cry out, to have those groanings, to have that crying out for God. Amen. Praise God. And in verse 27, And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Amen. And we know that God causes all things, even the bad, even Joseph's situation, even my his, even everything we go through in our lives. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, to those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He's in control. It's ordered. It's ordained. It's God's way or the highway. It's going to come out his way. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become performed, to be changed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, not few. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Well, everybody. But if God is for us, we have the victory is what that means. That even though these people withstand us, even though everybody's against us, victory is ours. And in the end, those will be gone. Those will be like wind. They will be like grass. They will be gone. 
If God is for us, who is against us? They're not going to be standing. They're not going to last. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, Abraham, and the Father God, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with us freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. God is the one. Who is the one who condemns? Don't worry about others condemning us. God, 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 God. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? God is king. God is sovereign. God is on his throne. Who also intercedes for us? Verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or pearl, or sword. Any of these things are going to separate us from God if we are steadfast, if we are immovable. If my heart is steadfast, O oh God. My heart is steadfast, O oh God. If we are anchored in God, if we are anchored in Jesus Christ, shall any of these things shake us? Shall any of these things move us? Verse 36. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death. Amen. We are being crucified all day long, it says. We are being put to death. We are being put to death. The, The flesh is decaying. The flesh is decaying. The flesh needs to disappear. For the sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 37, 37, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Overwhelmingly conquer. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, or powers, or heights, or death, or any other creature, or anything created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us put our minds on God's love because nothing's going to separate us from God's love. Let us put our minds on God's love every time the earth shakes, every time that bad news comes on TV, every time that bad news comes through the newsletter message. Let acknowledge it and move on. And say, this is meant to be, as supposed to happen. God is sovereign. God is on his throne. God is king. God is my king. God loves me. I'm okay. He is in control. It's going to be okay. All things work out for the good, for those that love God, and for those that are called according to his purpose. We are ordained for life and not death, and not even death to separate me, not even tribulations to separate me from the love of God. Let us to our minds on the love of God. Amen. What greater thing. This whole book is a love story. This is a love relationship. This is a love relationship. We want to see him face to face. We want to lay our head on his chest. We want to wash his feet. We want to kiss his feet. We want to throw ourselves down as dead. We want to be like John and throw our flesh down and say, I'm done with it. 
done with this flesh, crucify this flesh. If any of us were ordained to die for God, what a wonderful thing it's going to be. If any of us are ordained to lay down our heads at the sword for Christ Jesus, we should die shouting. That is the truth. If any of us ever has to face that decision, do this or be beheaded, we should be so happy that, that we do that, that we're a call for that, that we're ordained for that. At that moment, but at this moment, we should not have the spirit of suicide. At this moment, we should not be that that is uh, necessarily our goal, unless we know that that's our goal, unless we know that's what we're called to do, unless we know, yes, God has called me to do that. So we've got to find our calling, stand in it, embrace it, whatever it be, then it's no longer the spirit of suicide. But some people do have the spirit of suicide because that's what they want. They want to die for Christ, and they're excited to die for Christ, and they want it, and they're eager for it when they're not called for it. So we've got to make for sure what are we really and truly called for. Amen. So this is what God has given me. And let's see. One more thing. Romans 9. Verse 1, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a pure, a curse, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, who are the fathers, and from the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are all not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the world word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there also was Rebekah also, when she had received twins, by one man, our father Isaac, the sons of Esau and Jacob. For though the twins were not yet born, go back to Jacob like we started with. For though the twins, verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him, who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written. Jacob I loved, but Esau I rejected. It is what it should say. God never hated a human, but he rejected Esau. And it should say, Jacob I love and chose and accepted, but Esau I despised, refused, rejected. What should we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy 
on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion, on whom I will have compassion. In other words, God chooses. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God. God is in control. But on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God did through Pharaoh what he was supposed to do. It was meant to be. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. He's hardened Obama for a reason. Everything, he's hardened the Supreme Court for a reason. Amen. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing motive would not say to the motor, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Why, if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory into the vessels of mercy, which he prepared even beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people and her who is not beloved, my, my beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, that should be called sons of the living God. So he has translated us from darkness to light. We were yet sinners while he died for us. It is not our righteousness that brings us to God, but his choosing, that he has called us that he has chosen us, that he has called and elected us for this time, for this season, for a reason. Amen. Praise God. Let us not be proudful of our obedience, but let us put our mind on his love and his mercy toward us. His love and his mercy toward us. I don't preach enough about his love, his mercy, his grace. But my whole life is a testimony of his love, his mercy, his grace, that I'm still alive today, that he's called me to preach, that he's called me for the work I'm called to do. So let us throw ourselves down at his feet. Let us sacrifice our lives for him. And whatever he has called us to do, let's follow him. And he is, he is the great shepherd of the sheep. Amen. Praise God. So we'll conclude this and then we'll do questions and answers, food and card ministry, everything. Don't forget that tomorrow is the first radio broadcast in Detroit, Michigan. And you can listen to that. Uh, It's not a live thing. I've recorded it. But you can listen to it uh, as it comes on the radio tomorrow at 11.30 Eastern Time in the morning, 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time tomorrow morning, Sunday morning, first day of the week. 
which is going to be July 19th. You can listen there on the ministry website, isawthelightministries.com slash radio dot html. And, uh, and if you miss it, you can listen later because after the broadcast, I will upload it to the website and you can listen anytime 24-7 to that broadcast. But it comes on at 11.30. And then Cincinnati will be Wednesday and it will be the exact same broadcast. I'm just going to do one broadcast and send it to both radio stations. Sometimes I might do different messages, but for the first one through three, probably uh, definitely being the same message. And then uh, Wednesday at 11.30 in the morning. So they're both 11.30 in the morning. One's on Sunday, one's on Wednesday. And I'm praying that if it be God's will and if he will provide the finances, the blessing, and the anointing, and that his will will prevail in it, that his will will be accomplished in it, that if he wants me to, please give me Chicago. Please give me an invitation to go on the radio in Chicago, and if I receive and when I receive that invitation, then I will accept that invitation and will follow the guidance of the Lord into that. Uh, if God sends the invitation, then I know he'll make a way for it. So I'm feeling that calling to speak Chicago, and therefore I'm asking for it that I may receive. Amen. In the name of Jesus Christ, and uh, be praying for the radio signals of these stations to be real strong when I'm on the air, for those signals to go strong, to go far and wide, for people to be turning the station and to tune in to that station. Thank you for listening to this gospel of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.